Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's called a bear flattening, when the, oh, when the front end sounds, sounds off and you <clears throat> start to rise. So that's the bond market, Tom. And then the FX market, dollar strength. Can't get away from this at the moment. We just had the biggest monthly gain on the dollar index yeah. since 2016. I know someone's patiently waiting by to weigh in He's from saying, Washington. Why are they talking so much? Talk Adam to me. Poson, Peterson Institute president. Adam, always great to get your insight. Walk me through just your thoughts initially from the uh, news conference yesterday as we wake up this morning and get started again. Well, thank you, John. Um, I think the news conference was messy. It had to be because it's very hard to deliver the message of one and done. Mid-course correction or mid-cycle adjustment I thought was actually a decent attempt, um, but that just raises questions. So is this preemptive uh, against recession risks? Is this reversing the error now perceived of having tightened in December? Is this about the dollar, even though they can't really say that? They could have been more clear if that was the issue. Or is the press conference confused because the committee isn't agreed on the reasons, in which case then Powell did the best he could? Now, is, this, is this a process of overthinking, overanalysis, and just the, the, the sheer brass of getting out front of the data? I think, no, I think it's the opposite. I think that, I mean, sorry, Tom, but I think I think they've done a very good job starting almost a year ago in Powell's Jackson Hole speech of downplaying our star, you star, saying that, you know, we can't be too uh, ahead of things, can't be that confident in our forecasts and precision of forecasts mm-hmm. and these abstract, unmeasurable concepts. And the chair, I thought, interacted very well with, with the Congress. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and others in the hearing about that. The problem is if, if that's where you're going, then you usually should follow that by being more visibly data dependent. And there was no data being pointed to in this decision. Yeah, the data, John Farrell, was Michael McKee going, geez, isn't the economy good? And the chairman said, absolutely right. Well, Tom, I think that was probably one of the most difficult parts of the news conference for me. Michael McKee asked pretty much the exact same question he'd asked in the previous news conference that Chairman Powell struggled to answer. Why will lower rates help, given the challenges we have at the moment. So he repeated the question and guess what? Chairman Powell didn't really answer it. So Mike followed up once again and Chairman Powell struggled to answer it. Adam, it's a really difficult position for the Fed to be in when they're cutting interest rates and can't communicate clearly why reducing interest rates will offset some of the concerns they have. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there is a legitimate statement to be made by the Fed that the outlook going forward is worse, especially with respect to corporate investment, because of the trade policies of the Trump administration. It's kind of analogous to Brexit, that the Bank of England can't preemptively act depending on what they're going to do, but they can say, given this economic reality, we have to downgrade. And so it's reasonable for the chair to say that. But that's a fundamental uncertainty that that, that the interest rates are going to do very little to offset. How does the dollar slip into this? And Dr. Posa, we mentioned earlier all the history of foreign exchanges. Currency dynamics tangential to our central banking and finance now, or is it really front and center? 
it's moving further towards the center than it's been, but for the U.S., it's never quite center. The U.S. is too big and too closed, and also the short-term market moves are, too, are, 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 are not important enough. But it is more important than it's been for some time, Tom. And that is in part because there's some real changes. And here you, I do want to give yeah. credit to the Fed leadership. They've been very clear for several months arguing – cumulatively, that international factors are a bigger impact on the U.S. economy right now from the Fed's point of view than they've been. Now, the problem is you're, you're moving to saying this stuff is more important, which is any given move of the dollar has a bigger effect or any given differential right. between our interest rates and euro area interest rates has a bigger effect. But that's not the same as saying the dollar's massively overvalued. I mean, the Fed is not yeah. taking a position on that, nor should they. John Farrell, Sterling rallies in the last uh, 10 minutes off the BOE announcement. Should we turn to the Bank of England? Let's do that. A little bounce off the bottom. Cable 121.15, still lower by a third of 1%. The Bank of England keeping policy unchanged. The vote 9 to 0. Rate still 0.75%. It was always about the outlook in the inflation report and whether the projections would include a no-deal possibility. Headline, they do not. So, Adam, I just wonder how big a pinch of salt we should have for these forecasts today from the Bank of England going into this news conference with Governor Carney because they still assume a smooth Brexit. Well, they they have to, Jonathan, I want to be clear, they they are not saying any message that a smooth Brexit is likely to happen. Oh, no, Adam, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. I'm just saying that that's what... Right, right. That's the the premise that underpins the forecast. No, I just just want to be clear. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. For for reasons of accountability, the Bank of England is not allowed to let itself make a premise other than that. And so, yeah, of course you should look at the forecast as as totally irrelevant, essentially, at this point. The, The issue is... Going back to what we were just saying with the with the Fed, but with a with a difference, because the UK is casting itself adrift and alone through Brexit, and all inherently is a smaller economy with its own currency, and so the move of currencies towards the centre is much more pronounced for the Bank of England, and so they are going to be they're just basically trapped. The Bank of England is at this point trapped. They can't do anything ahead yeah. of Brexit. If Brexit happens, they have to cut. If they if they cut, mm-hmm. currency is going to fall out of bed, and they're going to have to raise later. But those are the fundamentals. I don't think the Bank of England has much to do about it. Dr. Posen, thank you so much. Adam, Adam thank Posen you. with the Peterson Institute. This is a joy. Because of dollar dynamics, we're going to get a clinic this morning from truly one of uh, the world's great international economists, as we had Adam Posen on earlier with the Peterson Institute. We're honored to bring you the Senior Economic Advisor for Citigroup, Willem Bowder, forever associated with the London School of Economics. Professor Bowder, when you graduated from Yale a few years ago, we've enjoyed a 48% depreciation of pound sterling. Does anyone care? I suppose not really. Most of it has been gradual. And uh, it's, I think, a reflection of the underlying reality that yeah. uh, uh, the UK is a chronic current account deficit country that needs to 
steady real depreciation. Okay, two things. Very good. I agree with that totally. But is it a wealth destruction to the property of the United Kingdom? And critically, is it an open invitation for acquisition of UK properties by the rest of Europe? Well, uh, clearly, any uh, material depreciation of the kind that is beyond what can be justified by underlying current kind of balances uh, is an opportunity uh, to buy. But uh, uh, so certainly I'd say that the weakness turn we're seeing now right. is fear-driven. <clears throat> Did Jerome Powell yesterday instill a strong dollar policy? I think given where the markets were, it was a stronger than previously expected dollar policy. We're talking about, I think, rather minor uh, uh, changes as a result of this. Willem, Chairman Powell in a tough spot. Another central banker in a tough spot, and he's speaking right now, is Governor Mark Carney over at the Bank of England. You've served on the Bank of England before, and I just wonder if you could take us around that table of the MPC at the moment and walk us through how you'd be thinking about policy in a place like the UK at the moment. Sterling is cratering. The rest of the market seems okay. Gilts are still behaving like a developed market. Yields are coming in. What would you be suggesting to policymakers around the table about what the prudent policy response should be to some of the issues in the UK economy right now? The prudent response would be to say there is pervasive uncertainty about the nature of the Brexit deal or no deal that we're going to have. We will be ready to move in either direction depending on what actually materialises in Brexit land. So this is the difficult thing that I think a lot of people struggle with, the idea that rates could move in either direction. Just the belief that they could actually hike interest rates on a hard Brexit because they'd have to stabilise inflation. Do you think that could actually happen? No, I I see a a hike only in response to a soft uh, Brexit, a a deal at least as good as what uh, Mrs May uh, negotiated. I can't see... Uh, the sterling weakening as a result of, um, of, of of no deal Brexit and the Bank of England at that point because of the feared inflationary consequences uh, actually raising rates that would be they would see through the temporary inflationary effect of this uh, um, you know, Brexit driven depreciation the, the Bank of England has a history of looking through higher inflation yes. under Governor Mervyn King and Governor Mark Carney more recently They're doing it now you think that continues yes it does looking at markets right now do you think there is a challenge for the Bank of England given the depreciation in sterling at the moment or are we not at that tipping point just yet I don't think we're at the tipping point yet they um, not driven on a day to day basis by the latest movement in sterling <laughs> but as Maynard Keynes said when the facts change I change. How yeah. close are we to currencies forcing the facts to change for President Trump, for President Lagarde of the ECB? Are we, are we getting to tipping points that foreign exchange describe? Well, um, both these central banks, the ECB and the, and the Fed, managed to uh, surprise the market in a way that caused a strengthening of their respective currencies when they took the latest decision. And, uh, uh, but there's no I think, <coughs> special threshold that, uh, I, that, that is, is crossed when they will have to act in a radically different way. I think we are seeing a lot of high-frequency noise, and the central banks are best advised to sit back 
and try and look through it. At the moment, though, Willem, they have a communication challenge, and in many ways it's a communication challenge of their own creation. Yes. Chairman Powell is not a great communicator, and in the era of radical transparency that central banks have delivered to us over the last few years, it exposes weaknesses. And then he's added to it. He's introduced a news conference to every single meeting, and it leaves him exposed. How much harder is it now to communicate policy in the era of extreme transparency for central banking? Well, it undoubtedly is more difficult. The standards, the expectations are higher. But objectively, both Powell and, to a lesser extent, uh, Draghi, have incredibly challenging jobs. The U.S. economy is still doing all right. If the next PMI and the next manufacturing data, uh, next employment data come out looking reasonable, then the expectation of even another cut might be undermined. Um, so there really is pervasive uncertainty about the likely future cost to the economy, since it is not just domestically driven, but driven by external factors that are right. um, uh, high, incredibly difficult to predict. Is that the distinction now versus 2007 or any other crisis, 1998 or any others, that the external factors now overwhelm the domestic prerogatives of any central bank? And this is the first time that I can remember this happening uh, for the U.S. in any yeah. Clearly in And we for, heard that yesterday, John, I would suggest. Yeah. For, yeah. for Sterling, you know, we've had yeah. external events dominating right back to the 70s. Yeah. But in the U.S., you know, monetary policy has been really driven historically by domestic economic development yeah. to basically say we have to look separately at external risk. External development is a new game plan. Can I rip up the script here? One of the giants of Dutch soccer is retiring. Oh, Arjun Robben. Archie Robin yeah, is we retiring. Know, we, we both I actually Robin. watched him on TV this year some point, and he's so electric. I mean, even in his older career, this guy was a... I, I, I mean, love that you've got excited we, about no, this. No, I did. I mean, we all know Wayne Rooney, right? Everybody knows Wayne Rooney. But he was the equivalent of uh, Wayne Archie Rooney. Robin was a great player, yeah. 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 I played, mean, played for some big clubs, too. Big, and he, is he the... I mean, Dutch soccer, can it move forward from this after missing the World Cup? Well, uh, that was the, the, the different gender, of course, from the man that retired just now. Yeah. But yes, uh, I think Dutch soccer can probably get over this with a bit of luck. Okay, there we go. The Dutch Bill national team right now is actually fantastic. They, the, arg they arguably have two of the best centre-backs the in the world. The men's team? Yeah, Virg yeah, Virgil van Dijk for the men's team, the centre-back, probably one of the best defenders in the world, it, plays for Liverpool. Juventus just signed a very young player from Ajax called Delete, and he is fantastic. Yeah. So you have two it, great centre-backs. Frankie de Jong in midfield, just came from Ajax, went over to Barcelona. Another fantastic player. They yeah. actually have a really nice core of the team. And do you know that John went to Yankee Stadium to see van Dijk play? Play for Liverpool. Except he didn't play. No, I saw him. He was he on TV. He didn't play that long. Oh no! Well, when I saw him, he did. And he didn't. I play watched it. it. I he, watched he, him in the third inning. And, and he didn't play that well. He made a cameo appearance. Yes. He made a cameo appearance in the third inning. There were a, lot of, there were a lot of cameo appearances. Did you get game. your money's worth? I got I mean, my. Yeah, it was fantastic. A game. I really enjoyed myself. It was nice to watch the football at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, you came in at six fifty-eight a.m. I noticed. I came in on time. I made you the did. show. That's you all did. that matters, isn't it? You hit the red button right in the queue. Hey, Willem, Professor get me out of Butter, Thank Great you so much. Wonderful you. to catch okay. up with you. Okay, it was really good.
This is a joy. With us is Vincent Reinhardt, with exceptional research abilities at the Fed for many a decade, now holding out at uh, BNY Mellon, uh, providing perspective. And Vince, I want to take the next eight minutes to do a clinic on one of the most important research papers. And folks, it's beautiful in its non-mathiness and brevity. And this is Bernanke Reinhardt 2004. It is a jewel of a small paper conducting monetary policy at very low short-term interest rates. Vincent, you nailed it in 2004. How are you and then Governor Bernanke so prescient? Uh, Japan. Uh, there were lots of concerns in the first part of the decade of the Japanese experience, the inability of low interest rates to generate inflation, and we had an inflation scare uh, in yeah. 2003 and four. In, uh, inflation didn't match our forecast. It uh, failed to rise even though the unemployment rate was, was low. And so the question then is, uh, what the heck would you do? Well, what the heck would you do? I did a word search using the surveillance computer, and the word negative is not in your wonderful jewel with Chairman Bernanke. You didn't see negative interest rates coming, did anyone? Uh, mainly because uh, we were transfixed by the zero lower bound to nominal yeah. interest rates that currency and and why do why zero why is zero the the, the speed bump because we we just assumed that currency dominated i e currency is an i o u of the central bank uh, it is uh, you know payable on demand it is a secure payment and it gets a return of zero so why would you ever go to the central bank and to yeah. put a deposit for a negative rate people are still asking vince people are still asking that question a it's getting chronic and someone suggests it's getting deeper give us an update on bernanke reinhardt 2019 so, so- so here's here's the trick. This is the magic of central banking. The amount of reserves outstanding in the banking system, that is the deposits commercial banks hold, are entirely determined by how many assets the central bank holds. Because if you go out and you buy a treasury security, you pay for reserves. And, and banks can trade those reserves amongst themselves, but they can't get them out of the banking system. It's, it's a closed network. So therefore, you can tax them. And negative interest rates are a tax. Now, we were very negative on negative rates because generally when you're in a situation in which you want really low rates, right. your banking system is probably impaired. And taxing an impaired banking system isn't going to be good for credit. Does I tax- think that's what the Europeans have learned. Yeah, that's exactly. That's right where I wanted to go. The, the Europeans have learned this in spades. And what it comes down to is profit is lessened. Now, Bernanke's hardwired strength of financial system. We've heard this from, say, Magda Desai at LSE as well. The profits have evaporated under negative interest rates, right? Uh, exactly. And by the way, we also have much, much uh, a real impairment of cross-border banking transactions in Europe. Uh, so it's not just that they're not making any money, they're not making loans domestically, right. and they're not, uh, you know, arbitraging across markets. That that's a broken system. Do we do we risk Europeanizing or Japanification here in the United States? I've got a two zero zero waiting for a one ninety nine on ten year yield. We've got the dollar strength. We've got the challenges we all know over the last number of days. Do we risk catching up with Bernanke Reinhardt two thousand four? 
Well, I don't actually take Japanification anymore as a as a bad term. Go go back and read Governor Kuroda's Cam Dassault speech last month that he gave at the IMF. Uh, which G7 uh, economy has higher inflation in the last five years than the previous five years? Which G7 economy has had a half percentage point increase in per capita GDP? Answer is Japan. Uh, Post their uh, right. quantitative uh, uh, QQE uh, policy, they have managed to get inflation up. Now they may be given up and uh, and, and satisfied with inflation around one, but but they they've succeeded uh, at a cost. The cost is breaking their government security yeah. market. And they did it also by a lot of tiering in reserve requirements, i.e., they cut some slack for for some banks and so that's how you get around negative well rates. and they, they did that in europe they cut some slack supposedly for the people i mean the citations in bernanke reinhardt you've got carl bruner alan Meltzer of the carnegie rochester school you got gaudi eggerson and michael woodford writing up on the mathiness of all this forget about it vincent reinhardt it's about people our listeners dealing at the zero bound is this just a discussion in academics or can people ever see a decent return and even a real interest rate return on their savings a big problem with zero and a big problem with easing generally and you saw it last week with uh president drahi you saw it yesterday with 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 chair powell is they want to justify easing by talking the economy down. And that's not necessarily a recipe for for supporting growth. Uh, Zero is a magnet for bad feelings. Zero is a discouragement to saving. It also probably keeps alive zombie firms. Um, right. Uh, because you can always roll over, over uh, the loan book, even out of a firm that should go away. And so, yes, I think that, uh, look, you look at the, that paper, There, are, we should have included two more sections. And the one is the uh, uh, risks to uh, unconventional monetary policy. And the last one would be how to exit unconventional monetary are policy. Are we anywhere near exiting? I mean, that's the arch question. No. Bill Gross talks about decades of financial repression for savers. But I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen with all the turmoil of the last 24 hours, and everybody's got to go out and read Bernanke Reinhardt again because it's germane in 15 years on. Uh, you should also read Carmen's papers on financial repression. She's the one who, who brought the term back to life. Um, yeah, so once you take it out of the box, it's hard to put it back in the box. Yeah. Uh, both in terms of zero is a, a sticky lower bound, ask the Japanese, ask, ask the right. Europeans. And once you've done uh, balance sheet transactions, once you've done asset purchases, well, the hurdle for doing them again is a lot lower. So Carmen Reinhardt and Mr. Rogoff and frankly, Dr. Roach as well, ex-Morgan Stanley now at Yale. Then you go out to the distortions of asset bubbles off all this monetary ballet is that where we are now we're going to generate new uh do new new uh discontinuous growth in asset bubbles because of this policy we have in place i think you should ask uh president rosengren of the boston fed about that because i i presume that's why he dissented yesterday yeah uh, he's always expressed a lot of concern about yeah. uh, uh, financial stability, and and look, uh, 
the, the dirty little secret of central banking is you, the way you support economic growth is inflate asset right. prices. Oh, this has and, been one. Maybe, yeah. We're going to leave it there, Vince. We're just going to run out of time. This has been spectacular. Look for this out on our podcast. Vincent Reinhardt off Bernanke Reinhardt of a few years oh, ago. This is Bloomberg. now is digress from econobabble, dollar babble, and all the other stuff we're knee deep in right now, and actually do something quaint. What do you actually do with your money? He is more than qualified out of Pennsylvania uh, in economics, one of our most esteemed programs in the country, and also uh, has a shingle from the University of Chicago. Andrew Slimman joins us with Morgan Stanley. Andrew, to to be direct about it, there's different strategies. There's different approaches. What I love about your work is you're not over-diversified. You've got a, a relatively small number of holdings. What are you doing right now? If I walked in with a pot of money today, you know, $412 or, you know, $800, what would you actually do today with my pot yeah. of money? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for having me on. So look, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an equity manager. My job is to be invested in equities. Now, how I reflect my optimism about the market is, is, is I direct that by the types of stocks that I buy and how much risk I'm taking. Yeah. I think if someone walked in with a pot of cash, I would say to them, look, the markets had a very good move. August is historically not a good month for the market. The volatility, it's, a high, it's the most volatile month of the year. I think we're going to have a good fourth quarter, but I would be a little bit cautious okay. sitting at the highs we're at right now. Okay. Let's cut to the chase. What do you do with all the big name stocks? I mean, Sweeney and I, we keep score. We only talk about four stocks all week. What do you do with the ones everybody's in love with, including at Morgan Stanley, Amazon, Apple, blah, blah, blah. What do you do with the overall names? I, I think those stocks will be higher year end. Uh, I, I really do. I think those stocks, yes, they're, they're, they've done very well. But if you compare those stocks forward valuation versus previous market peaks, they're not nearly as expensive. So I think the crowding is going to continue on, maybe not this month, maybe they have a pullback this month, but at year end, they'll probably be higher. So Andrew, Tom's a lot more aggressive with his portfolio than I mean, he likes to roll the dice a little bit. I was looking at defensive stocks and when, you know, whether it's utilities or REITs or the consumer staples, and they're not necessarily cheap. What should no. I be thinking about on those defensive Great names? point. I think you have to be mindful of what the market is and how people, where people are situated. The stocks you mentioned, Tom, they're not the expensive stocks relative to their history. What's expensive is these yeah. defensive stocks, the, 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 the buzzwords that gets, you know, that gets kind of retail chasing is quality, uh, uh, low, low risk, and downside capture. If that, you throw those yeah. three words out, you get everyone crowded in. Yeah. So it's, it's just as you said, Paul, it's the consumer staple. Yeah. It's the stocks that are perceived that should do well if uh, recession's yeah. around this corner. Now, if everyone believes we're late cycle, the question I would ask you is, are we late cycle? 
Well, it's interesting. You know, Paula, I want you to jump in with an informed question. I would just point out downside capture describes a Red Sox season. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey. so, so, Andrew, you know, we've, we're hearing some earnings from some industrial companies, and they're all kind of calling out the fact that, uh, you know, they are seeing a slowdown. They are concerned about global trade. They are concerned about, you know, Western Europe slowdown and Brexit and how that could impact them. How do you think about some of these big global uh, conglomerate industrial companies? I just don't think they are going to turn positive until you get a China trade deal and then there's going to be a lag. And I don't think you're going to have a China trade deal in July of 2019 when the election's not till November 2020. So, I mean, I'm thinking, Tom, I just stick with my FANG stocks. They've been good to me. Exactly. And, uh... Well, this yeah. is an important point, Andrew. We're running out of time, but this is really, really important. What is the valuation of the market right now on revenue growth? Because those FANG stocks, you know, they're not doing single-digit, you know, organic revenue growth, 4%, that kind of thing. There's some legitimate revenue growth number there. Is that over-accentuated, or do I want to own absolute and relative rev revenue growth? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think what's intriguing to me is people keep talking about profit margins peaking, which is true. We're having some wage pressure, but actually revenue growth is accelerating because the economy is accelerating, especially for the consumer-oriented companies. Uh, and so I think the market is, is rewarding those consumer companies that are seeing yeah. actual revenue acceleration. Can you own foreign stocks with the dollar dynamics we've got right now? That's a real issue. <laughs> That's a yeah. real issue. I think this uh, overweight in, you know, and look, we run global strategies, but I think that Europe just continues to be the same old story, which is uh, don't bet on the yeah. recovery and the cyclicals in Europe. And Japan's been the lack, you know, the big disappointment yeah. of the year. We so do I it. think it's going to be the U.S. again. We got to do it again. Andrew Slamman with us. He's with Morgan Stanley and he's really in almost applied portfolio construction, which is very cool as uh, well. Forget all the fancy stuff. Let's talk basic now. Joining us is one of the great stories of the Democratic Party. She grew up 45 miles north of Bakersfield, California, wandered to economics with John Taylor at Stanford University, He's dropped by to play basketball and softball, and then has done a little bit in politics for Secretary Clinton. She is a Democrat from California. Amanda uh, Renteria joins us right now with Emerge as well, talking about getting uh, more women into politics. You're consulting to these survivors today? What's your number one message to make these candidates engage with America? You know, listen, this is a second debate and more of being who they are, ensuring that they're showing they have a fighting spirit, that they have a vision for this country is exactly what they need to be doing and continue to do throughout. This is a long process. It's a long process. <laughs> you, you know the long process, but you are one that's been in the trenches of this literally since your childhood as well. Are they being over consulted? Are they too fancy? You know, I think people showed up with a different energy this time around. I would have said that in the first debate. The second mm -hmm. debate, you saw people lean in a lot more from the very beginning. Right. We have to see a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt that this 
this competition is going to be really intense, not only in the primary, but also in the Great, general. Great, but you got to win six counties. You've got to memorize, and of course, Secretary Clinton learned it the hard way. Many would say losing the election. How do they not do a Clinton and lose the next election in those key counties? They're already talking to folks all across the country directly to them. You've seen some specific policies in a way that people Medicare for now. all is going to play in Wisconsin? You know, listen, I think they are absolutely leaning into tangible tangible, specific ways that people are actually affected. You saw that with Elizabeth Warren. You saw that right. last night on the stage, and you're going to see more of that. The other thing is they're going to them. They're going directly in these places to talk to them to see what's happening on the ground. Amanda, let's bring in Francine in London. Francine? Um, Amanda, how much are Democratic voters looking for someone they think can beat Donald Trump versus someone that actually matches their view of the world? Well, I think that's an important question, and that's why seeing those folks who are fighting and who are leaning in, not taking a back seat and doing an analysis for you, but really that passion and that intensity is going to be absolutely important when you get into the ring in the next debate and going forward. This is going to be an incredibly intense election, and last night you saw the beginning of that. Okay, who, who do you think has a chance of winning against President Trump? Is it a moderate or a progressive? I actually think that's the wrong question because I don't think it's about policy. I think it's what kind of fight you bring. And last night what you saw people defending where they were and being able to connect to the American people. Elizabeth Warren on the first night did that incredibly well. Um, on the second night you saw Biden do it. You saw Senator Booker do it. Uh, Kamala Harris did it in the first night. The more you see candidates get very comfortable with this idea that you're going to be attacked and you're going to answer back, <clears throat> that's what we need to keep seeing and that's what makes it possible to win. I keep on hearing that because the economy is strong, if, if the economy doesn't go down the drain, then President Trump will be reelected even if he doesn't widen his base so much. So what real chance does a Democratic candidate stand? Oh, I couldn't disagree more. If you looked at what happened in 2018, the economy was strong as well. I know, I know Trump was not on the ticket, but people were talking about health care. People were talking about humanity. People were talking about the values and the things that they thought were important for this country. And that one in 2018, that will again win in 2020. And I think you're going to also see Democrats say, who does it work for? And that particular question, I don't think got, got discussed last night okay, enough. We're not, we're not talking about the royalty of the Clintons or the royalty of the Obamas. We're going to have a Donnybrook at the Democratic Convention. Is a Democrat, what's the risk that the Democratic Party, your party, Rahm Emanuel's party, slips into running through with a progressive that's dead on arrival with middle America? I think you are going to see the party come together. I when just, when, well, give me a date and a time on this. I need to get my sure. April. So April, at the end of April? March, because at the end of March, seventy percent of the pledge delegates will be decided by then. Right. And at that point, you have from end of March to the beginning of the convention to come together. So yeah, well, one more question then, Amanda. Where are you getting this from? I mean, diehard Democrats. Do they want a Sanders-Warren zeitgeist or like Rahm Emanuel? Are they saying, wait a minute, we got to win this thing this time? Which is it? I think it's we got to win this thing <clears throat> this time. But there's going to be a discussion as to where people are on the ideological timeline and where people are in terms of the past and the present. Um, what's your dream ticket, Amanda? Is it too soon to choose? Or, you know, if you had to give me two names right Way now, too soon who to would choose. they be? Way too soon to choose, but we need to have somebody who can really address foreign policy issues. I yeah. think that's a really important one this, this time around. Um, and then I think you need someone that's going to excite the base. 
Can I ask one other question? How cool was it to see Mike Messina enter the Hall of Fame in baseball? <laughs> to see someone from Stanford yep. with his academics like you in Stanford economics, and he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Was that wonderful? I think it is. I think being able to see people span the different talents yeah. they have. Fantastic. It's good. You survived John Taylor's economics, I right? Did. I did. Very good. Amanda Renteria with us. She is a Democrat, and she looks forward to March and April, where maybe things will change for the party. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.